I always feel that whenever they press record, we're talking about food. Yeah, well, it's because you bring so many snacks in. I am just the snack provider. I feel that is my role in a studio. (laughs) What biscuit is he bringing today? Literal sugar daddy. What healthy snack? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I don't know if you've brought many healthy snacks in so far, Greg. We're surrounded by cookies. That's a banana. That's true. What are these? How are we going to share a banana? Mixed nuts. (laughs) See? Well, now that we've uh, got our appetites good and ready... I'm about to tell you a story of a horribly disfiguring disease. Lovely. Really glad I brought the food. A disease which had no cure and only one treatment for decades. Wow, okay. And the woman who came up with that treatment was completely forgotten by science and history. Oh, uh, you surprise? Until relatively recently. Woo! But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, or indeed people. I am Greg Foote. Hello. And I'm Marin Hansberger. Hi. And for this episode, I am the storyteller, which means that Greg has no idea what's about to go down. I sit here, I eat the snacks, I ask some questions. <laughs> Crunches into the microphone. It's a good life. So as I mentioned before, our story begins with leprosy. Oh. A lot of people know about it because it is a biblical disease. Like it's mentioned in the Bible as an actual disease by name. And it's usually mentioned as like this really horrible thing because as we mentioned, it's incredibly gruesome. But as we now know with the lens of modern science, it's actually caused by a bacterium called Mycobacterium leprae. And it's also called Hansen's disease after the guy who first finds this bacterium and identifies it as the causative agent of the illness. What do you see? Like, obviously, I've heard those stories of people losing uh, parts of their body. But what do you actually see with someone suffering from leprosy? Its most characteristic features are these nodules and lumps on the skin as the bacterium infects you. Disfigurement, lots of facial disfigurement, lots of swelling of limbs, unusual growths. And it also affects the body's nerves. So you get loss of feeling and paralysis. Oh, it's a nasty one. Not a good time. And here's the thing. Even though Hansen is the one who discovers that it's caused by a bacterium, we don't have things that kill bacteria until the 40s. We don't have any antibiotics until the 40s. Mm. So we don't have any way of treating leprosy. Oh God, what did they do? Ah, I'm so glad you asked because there's nothing we can do for centuries except put people who are suffering from leprosy in quarantine. Which Mm -hmm. is something we've touched on in a previous episode. So that's how we get the origin of what we call leper colonies. You may have heard of that. It's like groups of people who are all have leprosy, who are sent to some isolated place by themselves to basically literally just rot and then die. For years, I mean, this is a very slow-moving disease as well, so it takes a long time. These people have to be separated from their families and sent to isolated places. This often takes place on islands, like in this instance we're about to talk about in Hawaii. I'm about to show you a picture of one of the most famous leper colonies on Hawaii. So there were other people living on Hawaii as well at this time, right? Yes, but it's still uh, relatively, let's say, un developed place. So there are lots of wild spaces and lots of empty room, uh, not very developed in terms of uh, human habitation. So there are places that are still very, very isolated from other people. And they're often run by churches, right? So you get monks and priests being the people administering to these lepers and trying to make sure that they have some semblance of a quality of life. Right. So this picture is, um, well, firstly, the landscape is beautiful. There's like a big steep mountain behind Jurassic Park yeah I mean it looks incredible and then there's a a big uh, very basic church Um, in front of the church there are about 20 children and what looks like 
the priest or the vicar uh, and one other adult. And uh, yeah, the the church looks like it's kind of ooh, mid-construction or, or not in a very kind of solid state. Yeah, I, I mean, I can see that there's some disfigurement going on yeah. in the faces of the uh, of the children. So suffice to say, leper colonies, not a great solution to the disease. <laughs> because their quality of life and the, uh, I'm sure there were far too many people, you know, living in a small yes, space. and not enough resources. Hawaii is a difficult place to get fresh food to anyway. Yeah. And uh, that won't be the priority when it, when it no. gets to the shores. Yeah, exactly. Just as an aside, we now know that leprosy is a very difficult disease to catch. You actually can't catch it just from touching someone. Like if you had leprosy and I were to shake your hand, I would not get it. It takes many, many times of repeated exposure to actually catch leprosy. So yes, even though leprosy is a relatively horrifying disease and we're talking about all of the ways that it horribly impacts people's lives, it is very difficult to get. And now one of the main reservoirs of leprosy, especially in Southern America, America is armadillos. Armadillos? Armadillos. <laughs> Go ahead and read this piece of advice from the CDC here. For general health reasons, avoid contact with armadillos whenever possible. I think there's various <laughs> reasons why you'd give that piece of advice. In reality, there didn't really need to be this extreme isolated quarantine. It's just because the disease is so disfiguring and because it has this biblical religious connotation that these people are so discriminated against. So it's actually much easier to catch a cold or the flu yes. than it is to catch leprosy. So much easier. Although leprosy at the time is widely regarded as much more serious because there's no treatment. Because there's no cure, yeah. Like if you get it, you're going to die of leprosy. And the reason it's difficult to catch is because you've essentially got to ingest that bacteria? You know, that's an interesting question. We still don't fully understand leprosy's mode of transmission from person to person. Gosh. We think it's probably respiratory droplets, so you'd have to cough on me or into my mouth several times, but we're not sure. It's quite a picture you paint there. <laughs> So anyway, here we are in Hawaii. It's the early 1910s, and Hawaii has at least one, if not several, pretty infamous leper colonies throughout that island chain. And this is where our heroine enters the story. She's a young woman named Alice Ball, and she's studying at what is now called the University of Hawaii, but was then called the College of Hawaii in 1914, 1915, doing her master's in chemistry. And remember, it's the 19-teens in America, and Alice Ball is both black and a woman. Gosh. Yeah. And she's already received her bachelor's degree in pharmacy from the University of Washington in Seattle. So she has two advanced degrees wow, in science. she is smashing it. She's smashing it. In fact, many historians think that she actually may have been the first black woman to receive an advanced degree in chemistry. Definitely in the U.S. and maybe in the world. Wow, okay. Hard to tell because, you know, maybe these people aren't being written about, but... Nice one, Alice Ball. That must have been really hard. She's a trailblazer. I asked several experts about Alice and her life. And there's not a lot known about her, unfortunately, but we do know that her grandfather was one of the first African-Americans to master the daguerreotype. What's that? It's like the precursor to a photograph. So instead of imprinting light onto like film or uh, your lens to make an impression, it um, involves a, a chemical reaction on a piece of silver or tin. So people think that maybe Alice was watching her grandfather master this art. And that's what sparks her initial love of chemistry. It's a beautiful thing to watch as well, because you're capturing that image of the world yeah, on something permanently. And you kind of see it like with 
with phot- photographic film, photographic plates, you see it kind of materialize and then you've got this physical like memory. It would definitely capture your imagination. Yeah. I mean, picture watching that happen when nothing else like it exists. And you've got this familial connection. You love your grandfather. You're seeing him work this wizardry and you're like, man, I want to do that. I want to know how it works. So that gets her hooked on chemistry. That's what we think. And so after she does her pharmacy degree in Washington State, she moves to Hawaii. I asked Paul Wermaker, who's a librarian and archivist and writing Alice Ball's biography about why she ends up moving from Washington to Hawaii. And Paul says that Alice Ball and her whole family actually moved to Hawaii briefly when she's a child because her grandfather gets arthritis in his hands and he's prescribed warmer weather, a better climate to deal with his disease. So they experience Hawaii. And even though they move back after her grandfather's death and she spends the rest of her time in Washington state, Paul thinks that Alice realizes that Hawaii is a much more diverse culture. You've got indigenous cultures of Hawaii. So Samoan people, you've got Asian Americans. Actually, it's not technically even America yet. Hawaii is still a U.S. territory, but it's a more diverse place, maybe more welcoming. So it sounds like it was quite a refreshing place to be for a a young black woman, you know, a place where there is less discrimination and better weather for her, for her grandfather. Do you think that it was a better environment for her to be in? I think she probably gets where she goes eventually, like the heights that she reaches, I think are maybe made uniquely possible by this environment in Hawaii. So how long then is she in Hawaii for? So she does her master's thesis in two years. It's now 1916. She's working on it and she's trying to work out what the active ingredients in the kava root are. The kava root. Have you heard of kava before? I've I've drunk kava. Okay, different kava. Different kava. You can actually drink this kava and it's slightly psychoactive. It's supposed to produce like a calming, relaxing feeling. Oh, I thought you meant it gives you... Gives you images. Uh, no. Not that psychoactive. <laughs> not quite that psychoactive. Not hallucinatory, not hallucinogenic. Right. But it is supposed to relax you a little bit. And kava, used for centuries as an ingredient in a relaxing tea, was also, and not many people know this, used topically to ease the symptoms of leprosy. Now, it's debatable whether it was that effective. Is there an active ingredient in it that we know actually has some medical effect or is it just soothing? People aren't sure, but scientists now looking back on it are are indeterminate about whether or not it has any actual therapeutic benefit. And it's definitely not enough to make the disease go away, but it occasionally makes patients a little more comfortable. So she's doing this. She publishes her master's work on the subject. She finds out some some cool stuff. And the university, this is crazy, makes her the head of the chemistry department. What? She's just finished her master's thesis. She's like 22, 23. And they make her the head of the chemistry department. This is the university or the college on Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, yeah, college of Hawaii at the time. Exactly. Wow. I know. And so that, I feel like that just speaks to how well-respected she is for her work and how quickly she becomes this advanced in her work. And I asked Dagwami Abebe, who just made a short film about Alice Ball and her life, to give us a sense of what she was like as a person to have achieved this. And I think that's, I mean, that's really the sad thing about Alice's story is like, we know all her accomplishments and what she what she's done now, but it's just, there's no surviving personal, you know, diary or journal. So it's very hard to to like imagine also what kind of person she was in her day-to-day life. Why doesn't that material exist? Well, we're going to get to that. Her life is not very long. Oh, okay. And so one of the only few surviving pieces of Alice's personality that we really have access to today is an old high school photograph of her in 
uh, a science club and they're asked, uh, you know, as a senior, you can give a little quote next to your, mm-hmm. you know, your senior portrait. Hers that she has written herself is I work and I work and still it seems I have nothing done. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> Sympathize. I think lots of lots of people sympathize with that. Greg and I know how that feels. I feel like that it's just this really vivid window into who it Alice is, her mentality. Ambitious, lots of projects, lots of aspirations. There's always something next to do. Yes. Exactly. And her prowess and her specialization in these kinds of chemical processes so far at this young age captures the attention of Dr. Harry Holman. He's a doctor at Kalihi Hospital and he's seeing these leprosy patients come into his wards and he's trying to figure out, gosh, we have to have a better solution to this intractable disease. In her work with kava root, she's doing some pretty advanced for the time chemical processes to isolate and chemically split these active substances. And Harry Holman is getting on this bandwagon of something called chalmugra. And he approaches her because she is on the forefront of this process called saponification. What's chalmugra? Well, I'm so glad you asked, Greg, uh, because I'm going to explain exactly what it is and how it and Alice Ball change leprosy forever right after the break. We're back and you're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. And we are currently in Hawaii in 1916. Not literally. Greg and I are in a studio in San Francisco. But in our story... Oh, it's a shame. I'd love to be in Hawaii. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. In our story, Dr. Harry Holman, who's working at a hospital in Hawaii, has approached Alice Ball about something called chalmugra oil. And you are going to tell me what chalmugra is. It's a plant. It's native to India and other countries uh, near India. And it contains hide carpic and chalmugric acids. Sorry, what? You know, just those ones. You don't actually really need to know what they are or what they're called. But what is important is that they are active against leprosy-causing bacteria. Wow. I know. Was this just a um, just a lucky find? Yes. It's been used for centuries throughout history as one of those things where it's like, oh, I don't know, we rubbed this on someone and it they got a little better, so let's keep using it. So it's one of those things that we would call a lucky find, but actually probably different groups have been using it for years and years. It was probably probably lucky when they found it at the start, but it has probably been used for centuries, decades exactly. or centuries. Yeah, Traditional okay. medicine that's been part of, you know, a more holistic practice for all of human history. So Dagwami, who recently made that short film about Alice, he says this about Harry and Alice's relationship. I think when Dr. Uh, Harry Holman saw her, re- her thesis, which was on the cover plant and the method that she was using to, ext- uh, to separate the esters, he believed that purification process could be used also in finding uh, in, the, in the Chalmugra plant. So he approached her and once he read the thesis and he, he asked her to assist him in his research. Right. So basically use what you've done fantastically with the kava root and come and do similar chemical processes with Chalmugra to extract the oil that we know through history has been beneficial against, they don't know it's the bacterium, but against this thing that they're calling leprosy. Exactly, Greg. You've got it exactly right. And so we've got Dr. Harry Holman, who's on the front lines with these patients and seeing the effects in these patients' lives. And he's like, okay, Chalmugra, we think works, but it could be more effective. And people are using Chalmugra before Alice Ball comes onto the scene, but not very well. I spoke to Carissa Brewster, who is a freelance science writer who wrote an article all about Alice and her legacy. And she said, the scene like this. People experimented with doing all kinds of things like, you know, injecting the oil directly into your veins and things like that. And obviously that that won't fly. 
So she basically, um, you know, uses chemical process to reconfigure the oil to create a solution. I can't really speak to the exact um, chemistry of it, but she was able to create a solution that would be safely injectable into the body versus just you know, taking the oil and putting it right in your veins. Right. So the, so the mode of delivery is injection. People are trying to figure out all kinds of ways to use chalmugra oil in an effective way. People are trying to put it on directly topically, right? Like a kind of as a salve. Some people are administering it orally. Some people are injecting it, but it's got all kinds of problems. Like topically, it causes lots of irritation. Orally, it makes people pretty sick, like nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, things like that. And with injection, they experience abscesses, right? Kind of the opposite of what you're trying to achieve with trying to cure leprosy subcutaneously. It's got all kinds of problems. So this is something she solves, right? She must, she comes up with a way to find the active ingredient and actually get it into the body without causing one of these problems. Exactly. So this is a problem that that clinicians and people dealing with leprosy have been unable to solve for decades, if not more. And Alice comes in with her awesome chemistry knowledge and she comes up with the chemical process that purifies the active ingredient and makes it into a useful therapeutic tool. So now we have a much more effective treatment that has way less horrible side effects and is more efficacious against leprosy. And Carissa really speaks to how big of a deal this is. Um, So from the time that she created the solution from the oil in 1916 up until the early 40s, it was one of the main Um, treatments for Hansen's disease. And then once penicillin came on the scene and people discovered what that could do, studying antibiotics to see what they could do until we eventually have basically a drug therapy consisting of three antibiotics that can cure Hansen's disease. Right. So so the cure for leprosy is essentially this, this triple combo like a boom, pow, whack mm-hmm. of uh, three antibiotics. That's a good way to put it. Exactly. But up until the 40s, when this is developed, and actually the, that particular mainstay of leprosy treatment doesn't come until after the development of penicillin in the 40s. So from 1916, when she comes up with this, all the way up until, you know, late half of the 20th century, this is the main treatment we have for leprosy, all down to Alice Ball. I love that we're essentially calling it a saponification chalmugra oil. It's like there's no yeah, there's no like sexy name for it, isn't there? <laughs> there is, except people don't start using it until way after Alice's death because you would think, okay, yay for Alice. She does this amazing thing and helps a lot of people. She's celebrated and hooray, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, no. So like I mentioned, there's not a lot known about her because her life is pretty tragically short. She comes up with this solution in 1916 and then that same year, I mentioned she's head of the chemistry department, right? Mm -hmm. She's leading classes as well. And at the time, we don't have a lot of the same lab safety we have today. So in labs today, you have these big, what are called fume hoods. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the hood that you would have over your stove, right? Where you can turn on the fan and it like... With an additional screen at the front. Yeah, exactly. Where it sucks up any of the vapors from if it's your stove, it's like grease maybe, or if it's in your chemistry hood, it's any, you know... Noxious fumes. Yeah, things you wouldn't want to breathe in. And that's where you work with chemicals. We don't have have that in Alice's day. So she gets really, really sick with something. We're not sure what. People think maybe chlorine gas, which is obviously really bad for your lungs. She gets super sick, 
It's 1916. She's 24. Oh, no. And a couple months later, she dies. Oh, chlorine gas was used in the war, wasn't it? Yes, as a weapon. So we know how bad that is. So she has, I guess her life is like a flame, right? It burns really bright, but for a very short amount of time. Precisely. And we don't even really realize its luminosity until very, very recently, because after her death, someone named Arthur Dean, who is the president of the College of Hawaii, comes into the picture and steals some glory. But first, let's have an ad break. Welcome back. Thank you for listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. So in the same year that Alice has just come up with this remarkable treatment, she also tragically dies at the extremely young age of 24. And what happens next, I will let Dagwami tell us. So once Alice was sick, her research was continued by Dr. Arthur Dean, who was the head of the chemistry department and the dean of the College of Hawaii. He continued the research and manufactured it and it worked, but he didn't give her credit and and he renamed it to the Dean Method. No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really surprised by that because so far, although she is a woman and is black, she, you know, she's obviously managed to fight against the potential discrimination she's going to get from all different angles and actually be promoted to a really good position and do incredible work that has, you know, is recognized and does spread. So to suddenly post her death, have this Dr. Dean guy just kind of like take it and run with it. That's that's a real kicker. It really is. And I think part of the problem is that Alice dies so soon after she comes up with this proper treatment. She never gets to write it up. She never publishes it. She never gets an official paper trail, if you will. So is that part of the reason why there isn't much there Uh, many resources or references there for us to call on. Absolutely, exactly. And Dean publishes it first. He takes all of her results. He does expand upon them, but then he calls her original method, everything that she came up with and gives it his name. He calls it the Dean method. And how do we therefore know what she did and what she contributed? Very excellent question. Well, Dr. Harry Holman, you remember, he's he's the one who originally recognizes how good she is at what she does Mm. and comes to her and says, hey, you're brilliant. I need your help. He actually, in 1922, authors a paper that sets the whole record straight. He says, hey, Dean did not come up with this. And he is the one who makes the original argument that this should be called the ball method, which is sort of that catchy name that we've been looking for, for those long words like Chalmuger and Ponification. <laughs> right. Well, thank you, Harry. Good on you. I know. Good for Harry. But unfortunately, that idea doesn't really catch on. In 1922, people don't really make much of that paper that Harry publishes because Dean is around and he's shopping his version of the story to everybody. And Alice isn't there to defend herself or represent her interests. So Harry tries to give credit back to Alice in 1922 because by the 20s, the ball method, which should be called the ball method, is making huge differences for leprosy patients. We've already alluded to all of its impacts, but this also means not only is the disease less debilitating, but people can go home to their families, right? They don't have to be as isolated if they have a less severe case or if you get the injection when you're not as progressed in your disease, you don't have to be sent away to a leper colony. And in 1921, the U.S. Surgeon General actually says of the progress in leprosy treatment. The morale of the patients in the hospital is excellent and in striking contrast to that of former days when a leprous person was doomed to a long term of isolation in most cases to be terminated only by death. Does the, you know, what the ball method produces, 
uh, this version of the Chalmugra oil that they inject. We know that that's not curing leprosy. Mm -hmm. It's just alleviating the symptoms. Does that change the physical manifestations of leprosy to the extent that those people suffering from leprosy are more accepted into the community? Or is it that their suffering is less and therefore that's why they don't need to be in a quote, leper colony. I had trouble answering this question in my research for the episode because clinicians now and scientists now, even if they write something about the history of the Chalmugra plant and the Chalmugra oil, they sometimes even explicitly write, we're not really interested in Chalmugra's mechanism of action or they're not going to cover it in what they're about to write because we have this much more efficacious treatment that we use as a standard now, which is antibiotics. Mm. So it's viewed historically and I found it difficult to discover sources that talk about Chalmugra's mode of action. Obviously, it is helpful, mm-hmm. right? That that seems to be reported in Dean's paper and then, you know, Holmes trying to knock Dean down rightly off his peg. So we don't know whether, whether it's that that's leading to this more acceptance of people suffering with leprosy or whether it's reducing the physical effect of the disease. Exactly. My impression is that previously there was no way to halt the progression of the disease at all. And now we have something that does. So if you know you have leprosy and you catch it early, you can stop the spread or stop it from being so severe so fast or slow it down so that, yes, you are presenting maybe with a less severe physical manifestation of the disease that would cause people to really shun you and push you away. Well, actually, you did say earlier that the chemicals in the uh, Chalmugra do impact on the bacteria that mm-hmm. cause leprosy, which would suggest that although they don't cure it, they may slay, slow down its impact. And therefore, yes, that may change the speed of the onset, say. Exactly. So for several decades, Dean gets all the credit and Holman has tried to set the record straight, but nobody really takes much notice. It's only until the last couple of years that people have really started to recognize Alice Ball's contributions. They've looked back at history in large part thanks to advocates like Paul, who I talked to, who's dedicated much of his life to surfacing proof of Alice's work and getting people to recognize her contributions. So in 2017, the University of Hawaii recognizes Alice's Ball's work with an official scholarship that is now available to be awarded to University of Hawaii students who are studying chemistry, biology, or microbiology. And the former lieutenant governor of Hawaii did actually declare an Alice Ball Day. Oh, great. Which is February 29th, which as of this recording... That was yesterday. Was yesterday. <laughs> and that's a... Hang on, that's a leap year Oh my day. God, you're right. So wait, that means that it's only... She only gets it every, every four years. Hey, come on. That's not... That's kind of not fair. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why they chose the 29th. It's not like what her research is day. anything to do with something that it comes up every four years Bizarre. or something to do with leaping or... Yeah, that's a little strange. Right, well, we're going to celebrate it every February the 28th. That's right. Unofficial Alice Ball Day. And that's why I loved talking to people like Dagwami, who's making a film about Alice's story, and Paul, who's now writing her definitive biography, and Carissa, who wrote this great article about her, because hopefully that means that her story is going to get out to more people and more people will be able to recognize her contributions. And I asked Carissa what Alice Ball's story means to her. So hearing her story and, you know, other stories like Katherine Johnson, the mathematician that, you know, had double-checked the computer's work for John Glenn before he did his 1962 orbital mission. I mean, stuff like that, just hearing these stories of women doing their thing in times where it was very difficult, it just makes you want to press on and, and make things better so that, you know, 30 years from now, we'll have little girls, little black girls, little, you know, minority little girls pursuing things, and it's not, it's not a big deal. That's what we want. 
I can't really speak to this, but that seems pretty <laughs> bloody awesome. Preach, Carissa. <laughs> and, and not to freak you out, Greg, what kind of problems do we see with antibiotics these days? Resistance, something we comment on a couple of times in this podcast. So there is a trend of some cases of antibiotic-resistant leprosy that are being monitored by World Health Organizations. And so we may eventually see a day when Alice Ball's methods and treatments may need to come Come back. back. (laughs) I blame the armadillos. I just feel like Alice is this excellent emblem for us. You hear people say you cannot be who you cannot see, right? Exactly. And therefore Alice Ball is a fantastic person to celebrate. She is clearly a brilliant scientist who happened to be a woman, who happened to be black. Those are the stories that we should be telling. Exactly. And who felt that her work was never done. And I found ended this story and found myself wondering, gosh, if Alice had lived her whole life, what else yeah. could she have done? Right. And it just makes me feel really excited that we're uncovering her story and using it to tell and inspire. Thank you for doing so. Um, And I hope you have enjoyed listening to this as much as I have enjoyed listening to this. And if you enjoyed listening to this, please do rate and review the show. It genuinely really does help it grow. And please do share this episode and others with friends as well. We hope to have a lot more episodes of Surprisingly Brilliant coming your way. So please do subscribe to catch them. And if you've got a story from science history that you'd like us to tell or a favourite discovery or an invention or a person that you would like to know more about their story, just email us brilliant at seeker.com we would love to hear from you and your friends that's brilliant at seeker.com let's roll the credits surprisingly brilliant is a podcast from seeker and today's episode was researched written and produced by me Marin Huntsberger if you want more of my face and my voice you can find me on the internet at Marin B on Instagram at Marin Huntsberger on Twitter and YouTube and I host videos for seeker on their YouTube channel it was a pleasure for me just to sit here and listen and to learn uh, my name is Greg Foote if you'd like to follow me on the socials it's just at greg foot on twitter and instagram are there on youtube as well our expert producer was emily feld our editor was jeremy schmidt our studio engineer was ariella markowitz our supervising producer was david zwick and our executive producers are brian pendergast brett kushner and mangesh hatikuda and finally another huge thank you to the experts who contributed to today's episode dr paul wermiger dagwami abebe and carissa brewster if you want more on them and their work plus all the sources that i used to write this episode then check all of those out in the podcast description. Thank you so much for listening this week. We'll see you for another one. Bye. Bye.